Hello, everyone, and welcome to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, joined as always by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? Great, Jerry. Feeling good. Excited for this conversation. How are you? Uh, I am doing great. I'm actually not doing great. I'm in the middle of packing up my entire life and staying up till one in the morning, packing cardboard boxes, but you know, fake it till you make it right, Adam. <laughs> yeah. And do you want to share with the audience what, where, where are you headed, Jerry? Yep. I'm, I'm moving to the, to the great North of New Hampshire, getting out of uh, the city of Boston, getting back to my, uh, my love of the mountains and woods. So we're moving, we're moving about an hour North uh, to, you know, get some fresh air and uh, cheaper co- cost of living for sure. <laughs> but, you know, now we're going through the pain process. We're actually moving tomorrow. So our oh listeners can't see it, but I'm actually surrounded by a uh, fort of cardboard boxes uh, that uh, can <laughs> contain my uh, my life's possessions. <laughs> and you're still here. And we're still we're here. A great episode to uh, to the listeners. The show must go on, Adam. The show must go on. <laughs> and of course, I had to be here because we have an awesome guest on this uh, episode. Uh, I really want to welcome to the cast uh, Michael Thomas, the founder of uh, uh, Modern Solutions and also a lecturer at the University of Georgia. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. Uh, Thanks for having me. And if I could add one thing, I, I I would say that you are you are a good man. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I've had friends. I've literally, I've had friends who have asked me like, "Hey, can you can you help me move?" And I'm thinking like physically, just move boxes, not yeah. help them pack, oh. right? So <laughs> the, the the fact that you are you you're actually packing and not placing that burden on any loved ones or friends who may be helping you through this process, I think says a lot about your character. So uh. I'm glad to be here. I feel even better about being here <laughs> you're a good man you're a good it's man. it's it's actually a a funny story about that is uh my fiance's mother was going to come over and like help us pack up the kitchen and then the mm-hmm. night before uh she was at putt putt golf and tripped on one of the little windmills and broke her wrist at a putt putt golf so now she's just there as moral support just standing in the corner watching me pack all the uh kitchen utensils that 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 sounds staged i know right i'm just it just is what it is no judgment she she showed up in a cast and i'm like i wonder uh i wonder how many people can apply plaster of paris to make it look realistic (laughs) What what are the odds of that ever happening to anyone prior to helping someone back <laughs> right like that sounds like a i made the commitment i don't want to do it anymore and we're just gonna how do i get out of this ah uh, yes the, the good old putt putt golf <laughs> <laughs> oh but let's let's get to you michael the, the star yeah. of the show uh first of all so your firm uh modem modem solutions actually so it's yeah it's it's mo- modem solutions. oh modem i apologize yeah, yep yep no, no where where, do, where does that name come from? Yeah, it comes from Ecclesiastes 7, 11, and 12. Okay. Uh, so Ecclesiastes is, is um, one of my favorite books in the Bible, honestly. Um, the same thing with like Proverbs, especially when you get later on into Proverbs and you start mm-hmm. to really experience what David was actually experiencing and feeling. Mm-hmm. Because I just feel like those to me in the Bible, those are like just really authentic experiences. Right. It's not a, oh, I just pray and all these great things are going to happen. 
These are the, the real lived experiences of people in the midst of things happening where there's uncertainty and volatility or promises. And you don't know if these promises are still going to manifest themselves um, and you're facing all this opposition. To me, that's a real life experience. And so I, I resonate with those things when I read that in a Bible. But that particular scripture is my favorite scripture on money uh, in a Bible. And it's that money and wisdom can get you almost anything. But wisdom is the only thing that can save your life. And uh, so the idea here is that I think that culturally we navigate spaces where the emphasis is money, 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 money. Um, unfortunately, though, my experiences in the space, Adam, Jerry, I think that you would argue as well. The same is that money without wisdom is a liability. And um, and I don't think that we oftentimes I don't think that we can grasp sometimes how money has limits on internal satisfaction, internal joy, and all these other different things. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because it usually takes people to getting to that point, having it, and then saying that I still feel empty, right? I've gone through all of this. I've gotten a job, climbed a corporate ladder. I have this, and I still feel the same, mm. right? So there's a void there that money can't Feel. So that's what modem is. It's actually helping people to understand that although money can be incredibly important, incredibly beneficial, there are some holes that it can't fill. And it takes wisdom to actually to start searching and figuring out what can actually fill those holes. Because what I found working with clients oftentimes is that once we start filling those holes, guess what? Their need and necessity for money actually starts to come down a little bit. I don't need as much, right? I don't need the thing. I don't need X, Y, and Z because we've actually addressed where the gap really is um, and becoming whole in the process so that they can better marry money and wholeness to be able to achieve whatever goals it is that they really want to achieve and actually find the satisfaction that they were always hoping for instead of feeling empty once you've gotten the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's where that comes from. Down plan. You can see it. I mean, your your firm's tagline is you know empathy, connection, wisdom, and money. So can definitely yeah. see and in that order, right? And in that order, right? Because if we reverse it, right? When money becomes the, the saving grace, then what I found is that oftentimes we don't feel as if we need wisdom, right? We know it all, um, and if we don't need wisdom, then we don't need connection. We don't need people, right? Because money is the thing that I am building my Moats, using to build my mold. Um, and then if I'm in that position, if I don't need connection, I don't need wisdom, I don't need people, then why would I be empathetic mm -hmm. to the plight? All right. It's it's so that that mindset, I think, is so incredibly important. So we we lead in that way in terms of how not only we want to treat clients, but also to be modeling something with clients as well mm -hmm. uh, in the way that they engage in their interpersonal conversations around money. Like let's make money the let's make money the last thing and let's make prioritizing your relationship the main thing. All right. Because usually money is just a conduit to the main thing anyway. So let's not make it the main thing, right? It's a conduit to the main thing. So let's make the main thing the main thing. And let's walk back into the money conversations, but doing it in a way where there is empathy, where there is compassion, where there is grace and opportunity to be vulnerable, uh, that doesn't incorporate notions of judgment guilt or shame to coerce people to do what we want them to do 
Right. So when we lead with empathy, what happens is that not only are we being empathetic towards an individual, but we're actually having to engage in a process where we have to even change our disposition in a way that we engage, in a way that we hear, in a way that we respond. So empathy isn't a one way. It isn't a it isn't a a one direction relationship. Mm -hmm. It's actually bimodal. And I don't think people realize that if you engage in a process of an empathetic lens, you're going to find that it's probably going to change you more than a person that you seek to change. Right. Because, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about empathy with other guests on the podcast. Um, and a big focus is, you know, uh, our client's empathy, but uh, I watched your, your Ted talk recently, which it was a great Ted talk. Really recommend our listeners you. check that out on, uh, on YouTube if you get a chance, but um, you tell this great story about, you know, working with a client where, this woman, she was getting a tax return and, uh, you know, trying to convince her to, you know, save the money and she's going to, you know, quote unquote, blow it on a, a big screen TV. And yeah. you know, that's that's our snap judge. Oh, they're just going to waste it. And then it turns out, you know, the woman lived in a dangerous area. And the reason why she was getting a big TV was so that her kids would stay inside uh, and, you know, not be on the streets in a dangerous situation. So. Yeah. And you 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 have this you know great point about you know making snap judgments and you know being empathetic to our clients you know like you said it's yeah. a two way street it's not just about our our clients empathy but also our own empathy so you know how can we kind of avoid making those snap judgments how can we be more empathetic with our clients Yeah well I think the I think it's very similar in terms of progression of anything. Right. I don't I don't think that anybody's starting space with an empathetic lens is the same. Right. So I think that initially we find where's baseline for us. Right. Where do I have the capacity to engage in this process of cultivating this empathetic lens over time? And I think that I think that therein we when we have these conversations about empathy in general is that we set unrealistic expectations. Uh, because it's not a, oh, I heard this presentation or I listened to financial empathy, understanding the story beneath the numbers, and I just immediately become empathetic. No, because <laughs> your, 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 your disposition to lack empathy is rooted in personal truth, paradigms, and experiences that you've had that have led you to believe the contrary, right? And so within that talk, one of the things that I made very, very clear is that empathy is not the accepting of complacency because I already knew inherently that that was a barrier for a lot of people that I have conversations about empathy or even more importantly, compassion is that, oh, if I'm going to be empathetic, does that mean that I'm just completely accepting the stuff of individuals and their bad behaviors? No, it means that you actually understand the root causes of these things and why somebody's adopted what you perceive as a maladaptive response to their circumstances and situations. Mm -hmm. So now that I can understand the systems of a thing. So if I'm providing a recommendation, I'm going to provide what I believe to be as financially optimal within the context of their systems, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so, because again, and I've advocated, so I did the TED talk initially in 2016 uh, for the first time. And then again in 2017. And at that time, I was advocating that we need to rethink the seven-step financial planning process in terms of even what does it mean to cultivate and develop rapport, right? Like, how do we actually do that in a way 
that translates into the very bottom rung here as it relates to we've delivered the, the, the plan and now the client is execute on the plan and we monitor it. So how does anything that I gleaned from the client on rapport building reflect itself at every other level of the financial planning process? Rapport building isn't just building trust so that people don't ask questions, right? Because sometimes I think that that's what we mean by trust, meaning that because the business model for so long in the financial services space has been, hey, let's get AUM. Um, once we've gotten and secured the bag, so to speak, we'll maybe meet with our clients twice a year, maybe once a year, depending on their needs, right? Low interaction with client means less time with client so that I can spend more time cultivating my base here and all these other different things. Uh, so the the very nature of building trust and rapport was simply to secure the business, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, building trust and rapport wasn't to understand the emotions and feelings of your client. Wasn't to understand not just the thing that they want to achieve, but the why behind that thing necessarily. And why, and even behind, and then another level of why, why is that important? And then let's go one more level of why. Why is that important? To really understand the spirit of the needs and desires and hopes of the client, to actually engage in what we would call financial intimacy with the client and creating a space for vulnerability and an understanding where they have angst. So for instance, if a client says, hey, you know, is I really struggle with seeing a lot of numbers. It, it really makes me anxious and uncomfortable. I need to be I need to be understanding that in a rapport phase of this. So when I'm actually presenting the plan. I'm making modifications in a way of terms of how we present the information. Right. That's that's what I mean by financial empathy throughout the process. We need to even expand even further how we think about this and then also whether or not the way that I engage in the system of the client is creating discomfort, is creating dissonance. Is creating their feelings of right their autonomic nervous system ramping up, and even though I've given a recommendation, they don't go do anything with it. And then what we'll say is that oh, that's some type of bias the client has, right? Or that's some type of X, Y, and Z, some psychological thing. And then we just kind of leave it there. My question <laughs> is that I cause it, right? By not actually <laughs> listening, by not actually you, you know where I'm going here, yeah, right. So so yeah. even when we talk about the psychology of money right now, so much of it is based on the client and not necessarily our interactions with client and how we can be causing some of the very things that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So my yeah. stance is, let's if we're going to unpack this, let's unpack all of it and really serve in a holistic way in which we know to be effective, whether it's from medicine, because there's a litany of research in medicine on empathy, right? The, the notion and idea is it new. Uh, whether it's social services, right? Like there's tons of research in those areas uh, that that prove and have provide a process for how to engage in empathic inquiry of a client, how to even self-regulate as someone who is providing the service because a client could potentially rub you the wrong way. A client could actually say something that goes against your belief system or political ideology and things of that nature. So not only are you having to be mindful of the client within this context, you're actually having to be aware of self and what you're feeling and being able to assess that 
to effectively serve a client as well. Uh, so for, for me, in terms of how do we help advisors do better in this particular process, I think that we have to think about empathy or financial empathy, as I would call it. Uh, and the reason why I did that TED Talk was because what I've learned about empathy is that empathy isn't like, if, if someone says I'm empathetic, it doesn't mean that they express empathy in every domain of life. Mm -hmm. It isn't like this. That's just like if somebody says that I have low risk tolerance, it doesn't mean that there aren't areas in their life where they have higher risk tolerance, right? So my risk perception, my empathy is going to be dependent upon the system in my life in which I'm navigating. And one of the things that I wanted to be very, very clear about, especially during that period of time, was that there was a lot of guilt and a lot of shame being used to nudge people towards better financial behaviors. And actually to the point where people didn't even feel like they had to empathize about the financial circumstances and the lived reality and experiences of individuals to the point to where if someone were to not follow through on a recommendation or not show up to an appointment or not X, Y, and Z, oftentimes we would say, well, that client's missing out, right? <laughs> that right. client, that client does, that client doesn't care about their well-being and I'm not going to do any more than I've done. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there was there was no real desire to think about empathy within the financial services space as a collective in the way that we see it now. Mind you, right before I gave that TED talk, I presented it to financial planners in this space. And I heard from at least seven that said, I don't see why this is important. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I've just never to mind. There's more work without revenue. <laughs> exactly. But th this is the thing. Yes. Though, but when you but when you understand the model. And every financial planning firm that I've ever spoken to has issues chasing clients on the back end to do this, to do that. Think about it. When you all bring in interns, right? Usually it's to hunt people down sometimes to get certain information. So yeah. what you're saying is we would rather waste hours on the back end chasing client as opposed to incorporating 15 minutes of additional questions to better understand the client so that we spend less time chasing on the back end. From my perspective and having a business mind and an entrepreneurial mind, I don't see how that negatively impacts the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And so, right, because now we're not, we're, because we, we don't want to open ourselves to it, develop a new skill, rethink our models unless we have to. Uh, now we're in a space where we're, we're actually having to do that. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I completely get where we were at that time. But that didn't dissuade me from doing the TED Talk. I was like, nope, I see it coming. This is where we're headed, X, Y, and Z. I'm doing it anyway. Um, and so because a lot of people think that empathy is just a purely emotional state, especially in a space dominated by men. So that's another barrier. When you actually look at the research, empathy is a combination of a blend of, of knowing, knowledge is what we would call cognitive empathy, and emotion feeling, which is uh, affective empathy. And those two things combined allow us to be in a rational state to respond compassionately, which is compassionate empathy to the needs of someone else. So it's not all information and knowing, all feeling, because if skewed too far one way or the other, we then kind of lack some of the balance to, to respond compassionately. So case in if I'm a dentist, right, and I have a kid who's going to jump in my chair to have their teeth cleaned, I know that they need the, the cleaning done so that 
they we prevent cavities and things of that nature, right? Mm-hmm. However, I'm just not going to take this tool that they've never seen before that's making loud noise and this or that or the other and just say grit and bear it, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Grit and bear it. Or if you're going in and have a cavity filled or whatever it may be, you never generally you don't see a dentist come and sit in front of you and say, You see this needle? I'm about to take this needle <laughs> and I'm going to lodge it way back in the roof of your mouth. And there's going to be some discomfort. And they should, because they understand the emotional state and they understand that mm-hmm. it's bad for business because you scared the person and they're not going to want to engage. In fact, the best pediatricians that I've seen, pediatric dentistry, create a play environment where mm-hmm. kids are running around, there's music playing, there's stimulation, kids are jumping in and out of chairs. So I'm not putting them in this space where it's just me and your parents not here and I'm introducing you to things like, so what What that is, is that that's the compassionate response and business model by understanding that there's a need, but I also need to understand the emotional state of the person that I'm serving to mitigate that emotional space, that state, so that then I can do the thing that I know I need to do to best serve them, right? So, because otherwise it would be counterproductive to the business model and we can't get to compassion. But if I'm overly emotional, imagine a surgeon who is about to operate on a tumor on their daughter. I could not imagine that even if I was the best surgeon in the world, that I would have the capacity to do that because I'm too emotionally connected. I can imagine myself shaking. I can imagine myself being way more overly emotional if like, let's say something that usually happens in a surgery, but now it's a bigger deal because this is my daughter on the table. I wouldn't be able to do it. So it's not about being too emotional. It's not about being too logical. It's about marrying the two so that we can think clearly and then understand the emotional state of someone else without being over ridden by our own emotions to more effectively serve them. And I think that this is such an important concept for men to understand is that is that empathy isn't a purely emotional thing that we always try to tether it to. Actually, as a man and being more logical, that logical state is actually an important aspect of empathy. The question then becomes, do I understand the emotional well, the emotional state of my clients well enough so that I can deliver what I know to be the best strategy for this individual so that they can receive it. And then that's where that compassion piece comes in. So a lot of this is where we begin to process. Um, Clearly, I teach at the University of Georgia and I teach uh, advanced wealth um, classes and intro to personal finance. And every step of the way where we're talking about risk and returns uh, or we're talking about psychology or we're talking about data visualization and how information is being presented to your clients, we're always coming back to how do you understand, know, have a be able to, to be able to test the, the, the temperature on the emotional state of the client. And then how do you respond compassionately to help them to get to neutral instead of that huge boost of cortisol and stress that they're experiencing so that they can actually start to utilize their prefrontal cortex and not be geared in flight or fight so that they can even just hear you to even begin the process to do what you're asking for them to do. And my experiences have been that clients and people across different spaces that have worked are really good at being incredibly stressed and just doing the <laughs> smile and nod. Oh, yeah. like just, just, just a <laughs> smile and nod. 
right? And then they leave and they never come back. Or you give them a recommendation and they never do what they said that they were going to do, whatever it may be. And I'm always encouraging students now to be incredibly mindful of body language, to be okay with exploring words or phrases that a client is using, um, inquiring a little bit more, exploring the needs of a client, and even just directly asking, you know, I just want to ensure that we're creating a vulnerable space here because at the end of the day, none of this matters if you don't feel as if you have the capacity to actually take on the work that I'm assigning to you to do. Is there anything that I've said today that would make you feel slightly uncomfortable or whatever it may be uh, that could be a barrier to us as we move forward? And we could address that now. Uh, we could address that and just know that if you do, uh, this is par for the course in terms of what we're doing, because we may have touched on something that you didn't really realize was a trigger. I know it was a trigger, right? <laughs> and I'm here, I'm here actually to help you to work through those things just as much as I was here to help you with the plan. Because think about it, consistency is the only thing that compounds. I don't care how much we talk about compound interest, unless you can stay invested for a long period of time, right? And stay the course, it doesn't matter. So how do we get people to a place of where they can consistently, from their baseline, develop the capacity to sustain the efforts that we hope for them to sustain? And I would argue that we never get there if we don't think holistically about the lived experience, the systems internally and externally of the client and incorporate those things slight adjustments in terms of how we deliver a plan, how we communicate to our clients and support them on their journeys. Yeah. So, and especially with that on how we communicate, um, you have a, a great video I watched about the, the beginning of wealth is we, and the language, <laughs> the language that we choose to yeah. use that, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, switching from you to, we can have, you know, positive effects on, you know, building yeah. that rapport. Can you just kind yeah. of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so that for me, that, that's just a play. That's that's a financial play on pronouns. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't. I know there's a lot of conversations around pronouns these days, so I'm gonna <laughs> just jump right on into the mix. Uh, but but I think actually listening to clients' language, or even being mindful of our own language, right? So, for instance, I versus me. I is something that I'm acting upon. Me is something that's acting upon me. Like, let's just let that sit here. Yeah. For anybody who's listening, think about your own language as you think about your, your finances. Do you use a lot of I language in terms of I am going to set up my high yield savings account, right? I am going to ensure that I update my beneficiaries on all of my, right? I, or is it me, right? Me is what's happened to me. Me is what's acted upon me. So therein, I'm not actually expressing agency. I'm literally existing and allowing for space to dictate to me whatever it will dictate to me. And I'm not feeling as if I have agency. So I think that, so one of the things that I listen to with clients is like, what pronoun are they using when they're referring to themselves? Is it proactive or is it reactive? And so one of the things that I try to do within sessions with clients um, is that I actually try to model language for them that provides them a way to incorporate new uh, internal self-talk into their dialogue to counteract 
the internal self-talk that they naturally engage with when something arises where they're triggered. Uh, so very important to me. And I'm always trying to model things for clients. And then I use those things in follow-up communications. Like, hey, you remember when you said X, Y, and Z? Um, I was like, that's, that's the exact language that I want you to consider next time when something like this happens. Uh, because you already have a story connected to this. You have a win connected to this. There's dopamine that's associated with this. Um, just consider it, right? And then the we versus you, that again is a lot of language in terms of wealth creation in general. Uh, and what I found, especially especially working at the University of Georgia and for families that don't come from wealth, even though a lot of people think that, oh yeah, UJ has all you know kids who are X, Y, and Z. We have kids that are all across the board at the University of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And um, what I found is so many of them are carrying a very huge burden coming into college because it is like literally, I have freshmen uh, right now and in the past, who we've had teary-eyed conversations about the fact that they felt as if they're the entire family, the weight of the entire family burden was on them. Think about that. Yeah. Coming as a freshman, not saying that college isn't already stressful, right? With exams and peer dynamics and this or that or the other. I got into the fraternity sorority, I didn't get in. Finding your place and your identity. They're coming with a lot of family weight. And an understanding if that nobody does this, I'm the only one, right? And in assuming that identity, right, they're placing all the burden on them to be the one to be the south, so to speak, for everyone's financial behaviors that aren't conducive to the collective. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I often have to do with working with clients is that I have to make it very clear that Wealth creation isn't an I thing. It's a we thing. I don't, I don't know anybody who is successful in my peer groups who've done anything, anything. They, they may present themselves as if they've done it by themselves or alone. But when you actually look behind the scenes, you have teams of people. You have someone serving you here. You have a mentor helping you see landmines that you wouldn't have seen here. You have other colleagues that you can reach out to about a situation that is new and you want to figure out how they've kind of navigated it and how they helped a client, right? So the, the very product of your success is oftentimes rooted in the community that you have surrounding you and everybody working together towards this, this common goal. And then what I found in that we convert in that, in that it's, it's me that, or I have to be the one to be the saving grace for my family, especially for students is that they haven't been in a space yet where they then have to begin to set boundaries with family. And that's a very different, that's a very difficult conversation. You don't have that as a freshman in college. Yeah, actually, when you graduate, you probably don't have that conversation until you're 30 if your parents will allow you to begin to have that conversation. <laughs> but what happens is, is that there's no reality of, of boundaries, right? So if I don't have boundaries and I'm assuming that it's all my responsibility, how does that not create overwhelm? Right. To think that not only am I trying to save my, for myself and my future, mom and dad have nothing saved. They have tons of debt. They keep spending recklessly. They keep doing, they're not taking care of their health. There's, now you're thinking, now I have to be saving for them too. 
right? And because there's no clear boundaries, what happens is that, especially students, and there are adults who are listening to this who've internalized this as well, if there's no effective boundaries, you assume that it's all your responsibility. And if you assume that it's all your responsibility with finite resources and time and inflation and volatility of markets, then that the volatility of the external world coupled with the involatility of your internal world and the interaction of that just magnifies volatility and it causes undue stress, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole purpose of me having that conversation was to be very clear that it's not all your responsibility. Yeah. And it's very important to realize that actually setting the boundaries is probably the only way that you're going to get someone to nudge. And oftentimes, many of us who, and I know that there are some folks who are listening to this right now, where it took them until they were 40 or 45 to realize that I should have actually set boundaries sooner, because now I'm starting to see the change in the people in terms of taking responsibility and this or that or the other for things that they're doing, and they're in a better space. They're no longer dealing with financial fragility. They're being more mindful and all that jazz. So it's just really trying to reaffirm people that it's not all one person's responsibility to create wealth for an entire family. And what would happen if we thought about how can we as a collective do our small part wherever we are to contribute to wealth creation as a family dynamic? Because the narrative has to change. And I I have more experience with, with Black households, but I'm pretty sure that you see this across socioeconomic status and demographics and things of that nature, is that sometimes when you have the, the one rich aunt or uncle, sometimes it's like, all right, well, we have one rich or one aunt or uncle, and then there's no space for another rich aunt or uncle. <laughs> so subconsciously, that actually yeah. plays out in the minds of people. Like there is only space for one. Right. My challenge is, is there really and is this dependent upon society related things or is this dependent on mindset and perception of what I can contribute or what I can build on based on what other people have done that came for me? So that really is the whole spirit of that conversation and take the weight off of people. Yeah. Right. So that they can enjoy their lives as well. And not always be worried about, well, what if this happens to so-and-so? Because they've assumed that as the identity that I'm the family protector. I'm the family responsible one. And once you assume an identity, that becomes your way of thinking. And it also manifests in a way that you engage with money. So that's why you can have people who have a good amount of resources that are still are incredibly anxious around spending or enjoying life. Because they've assumed the identity that it's my responsibility to make sure that everybody's good, even if it comes at my own sacrifice. Um, and personally, I just don't think that that's fair. This is Adam from the Biff Crew. Now, if you're listening into the podcast and you're finding our conversations of interest, if you're finding the material that we talk about helpful, if you're looking to take your knowledge of personal financial planning to the next level, then you need to consider the Bryant University and Biff CFP Education Program. This program was written and it's delivered by the Biff team. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on is being accessible to serve as your guides and support you for the entire CFP education journey. And all throughout that journey, you have access to 
practitioners and to experts that are going to help you to understand these concepts and also help to best prepare you for your CFP exam. So if you're looking for a CFP education program with great support and the Biff Bites crew, then the Bryant University Biff CFP Education is for you. For more information, visit bryantcfp.com. Do you find, Michael, with the students that coming from that background would would drive their desire to be a planner if they're coming from a space in their yes. past? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You, you Actually, I see it a lot. Uh, and, and again, my... Um, my sample isn't necessarily a random sample of students, right? Because they're they're opting in to take my class. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the students that I see who choose to take it, who come from rural backgrounds and households where there's no money, there's no inheritance coming. Maybe they don't even know if mom and dad still have their insurance policy, right? Um, is that they they want to be the change agent for their families. And I and I hear that again, black, white, Latinx, Indian, Asian, it's it's across the board. Now, the the degree to which may vary, but I'm hearing a conversation it's across the board. And so students who see that, they're 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 coming in and being very disciplined, very focused. These are my students who oftentimes have part-time jobs, uh, are are very are very good about planning and just making sure that they're optimizing the use of their time because they have to. Uh, these are my students who don't have a, a safety net, meaning that if something transpires at college, they don't have anyone that they can call without feeling like they're being a burden to that person because that person would end up robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? So they're creating even more issues down the family line that they would just choose not to. And they're, they're very focused very self-sufficient and very driven by their experiences, which I think that that's good to a certain extent. But the issue for that I try to address with students is that, but I, I need you to be able to find balance through this journey. Because for a lot of them, they're driven that way because it's fear-based. And the issue with a fear-based response continuously, that if fear is the thing that's constantly driving you or the threat of that, when do you untether yourself from the fear? Because now you're a professional, you're making great money, but you're still bounded by your previous reality of that inner child, right? That experience life. And for that inner child, what they experienced was very, very real. That part of you, that was real. But now what we do is that we take that emotional state. Why do we take that emotional state? Because guess what? It's hardwired in our brain. These are synapses that have connected in our brain. So our behavioral patterns is wiring of the brain, which is why it's so difficult to change behavior. So to actually engage in behavioral change, we're, what we're literally saying is that we're rewiring our brain. That's not a small feat, especially if it's something that you've experienced for years in terms of constant financial shocks. People didn't make financial promises. Like someone would promise that, hey, we're going to go do X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't happen. Or, oh, you're going to get this for Christmas and it doesn't happen. Or, oh, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. So let's think about how that translates to someone when they're older. Now, let's say I'm speaking to someone. I'm saying that, hey, if you invest in the stock market, in the total market index fund, or the S&P 500, and you hold it for so many years, you're going to be good. But if my lived experience 
is that whenever promises are made, they're never kept. They're always broken. Right. So that piece of my inner child, that boundedness is going to bound the way that I see reality of something that I could reasonably say if I do this is going to be the case. But my brain is wired and is adapted to say, don't trust that because we don't know if that's ever going to happen. That's a very deep way of thinking about the experience of someone that you're engaging with. And that's what we're seeing with students. What I try to do in my classes, I try to incorporate a lot of laughter. I try to incorporate a lot of fun. I try to incorporate a lot of joy because for many of my students, the only experiences that they've had with money is that this is burdensome. There's always, right? You get some yeah. money, the check in, the check engine light comes on, right? Yep. There's another bill. There's never a point to where we can actually enjoy this process. So my mission, especially with teaching my intro to personal finance class, is to infuse as much joy as possible in the way that students are interacting with themselves in terms of internal dialogue, dialogue and what they're thinking, and also interacting with others in the class and actually modeling what healthy financial conversations look like, how we can have different ways in which we perceive money and still see the benefits from your spender. I'm a saver, but neither is inherently good or bad. And actually, the both conjoin with having healthy conversations and reasonable boundaries, reasonable boundaries set can actually be a huge benefit to the dynamic of a relationship. Because as a saver, I don't spend. But whenever I do, I enjoy life. Right. I would have never (laughs) done it if my wife didn't say, hey, let's go here, because I think that the sky is going to fall and something's going to happen. But she nudges (laughs) me to do it. And then we do it and we have a good time. And guess what? There are no bills. There is no something came up. Oh, this is a reality. And then so like for my wife, she's more of the like, let's go, go, go. And I'm like, hey, did we look at this? Can I see the numbers? Can I? And she's like, why you always got to see the numbers? I was like, because that just makes me feel comfortable. <laughs> right? She's like, you're always going to ask a gazillion questions. But then what happens is though, it sometimes it pulls her back a little bit from making leaps that she shouldn't make. And then she says, oh, um, thank you for actually asking me all those questions, even though I didn't like it. But we both can provide balance to each other, even though we have different dispositions. And I think that that's a more elegant and beautiful way to think about money and to think about where we provide opportunity for self and others, as opposed to putting things in boxes and just saying that something's inherently good or inherently bad. I just feel like there's a spectrum on all of this and we have to open up this conversation a lot more. And I just try to model it in a way that I teach my classes. Yeah, that's great. And that that seems like wildly, I would imagine, wildly beneficial to people that are interested in pursuing this field. Yes. To see that and to practice it. Yes. Because um, I wonder often about uh, some of the planners that have, have been at this and in this space for a while with some of the, the newer views on on what that relationship looks like between client and planner yeah. and with with all of the people doing good work in that financial therapy space and the more interpersonal space yes just, just how you probably weren't coached in that mm-hmm. in in a professional space I yes mean, so what would you recommend to to someone that is 20 years into this journey and, and wanting to develop that, where where would they start? Yeah, uh, I would say someone who is who's 20 years into the journey, 
Um, what I would do is that I would just do a listening tour. I would, I would actually step back and just reach out to clients and do some small focus groups and say, hey, how do you, do you, do you find joy in this process? Like just literally just yeah. ask the question, right? Because I, I, we don't have to recreate the will. There's nothing there. But I just think the, the being aware enough to just ask the question because the tools are out there. And that's, that's the beautiful thing about the space that we're in with artificial intelligence, ChatGPT, and all these other different things. The tools are out there, but if we never begin to ask the right questions, we never tap into the right tools. So we can have an abundance of tools, but if we're not seeing the appropriate issue and then asking the right questions, we never tool up with the right tools, regardless of how many are out there, right? So that's where I would start. I would say, you know what, let me just step back and say, let me ask my clients, right? Listening tour. Like I'm not offering, I'm, I'm changing the power dynamic here, right? There actually is no hierarchy. We're now on a, we're not in a vertical relationship. We're in a horizontal relationship. I just want to hear you and, and hear whether or not you're enjoying the process. What about the process do you enjoy? Even if they say, yeah, like there are parts of it, but then what parts of it do you enjoy? When do you find happiness talking about money? When is it exciting and all these other different things. And what I would do is then I would work backwards. I would take all that language. I would take all those situations and scenarios. Because if you're working with a particular type of client, you're probably attracting a particular type of person, right? So the identity of your client base is going to be different from others, which is why you just can't go use someone else's tools with your group. Uh, so what I would, I would just think about who am I serving? And whether I'm engaged in real financial intimacy with them, not from a we're advancing, we're, we're marching down the field and achieving the goal, but actually really tapping into the joy element, the, you know, what are you, when you, when you leave our sessions, like, please be very open and honest with me. Do you feel excited? Do you feel motivated? Are there moments where you did? What did I do in that session? Mm -hmm. Right? What was it about that? So then what that does is that it helps for the individual to say, oh, I have something to build on, as opposed to having to feel as if now I'm overwhelmed because I'm hearing these things from my clients now, and I don't even know where to start, just like my clients don't know where to start. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now I start to feel exactly what they feel, and I don't want to do anything. And then what happens? Then I can either avoid the dissonance or I can engage with the dissonance because mm -hmm. of the stress. But what happens is that what most people do is they start to avoid the distance and they go back to what they've always done because it seems like it's too difficult to change. You get where I'm going here. Mm -hmm. So the ideal would be is to use your clients to find your strengths and then you use those strengths to incorporate where you found that you've got any small wins to promote the emotional state and just be intentional about incorporating more of that gradually. Uh, and then once you do that, what's going to happen is that you're going to build your capacity to do more of it because you're going to feel good in different ways. You're going to have dopamine. You're probably going to have levels of oxytocin in terms of real connection and meaningful engagement with the clients in ways that you've probably never experienced before. And that actually is going to propel you to want you to do more. So then once you've actually started building that up, what I found for people over time is that when you go to conferences and now there's that session about this or that, and once you're like, well, that's too touchy-feely. Now you're like, you know what? I need to add that on my app. And you don't even have a second thought about it because now you see the direct benefit of that in terms of your business model or retaining clients. And think about this. 
joyful clients go and share the good news about what you're doing. If you Absolutely. can instill, if we talk about marketing stuff all the time, and uh, and sometimes I think that we actually need people who've gone and got the degree in marketing to understand marketing and not just yep. kind of become this pseudo marketer now because you have a business. When you produce joy in people, imagine somebody who's a multimillionaire client and they're speaking with a friend and they say, yeah, you, you seem up. He's like, yeah, man, I just, I had a great conversation with my financial advisor. You know, we, you know, we're, we're moving along towards our goals. You know, we, we laughed a little bit. We X, Y, and Z. It was just a lot of fun. It's like really that was fun. Fun. That was yeah. that was fun. You know, who, who is, describe going to your advisor. Who, who who is this person that you're working with? Because I don't have fun with. But you said there there there's a there is a value add there, right? It's not always the the return, right? It's the experience. How am I creating an experience for my client coupled with? executing on what I am tasked to execute on, but how do I create a memorable experience that someone wants to engage with? Um, and I think that's just incredibly powerful. So, that, so that's where I would start. Start with your base, go on a listening tour. You are not the expert of your client's experiences. And then you're quite, and then your, your process every step of the way is like, just tell me more. When you felt that way and then you left, what was the impact on the way that you engaged with, with money for about a couple of weeks out? Tell me more about that. How did that make you feel? In what ways do you think that I can do more of this thing or some other things that you think that may? Tell me, it's, it's literally humbling ourselves to just listen. Mm -hmm. Because if we listen, guess what? The people that we serve are gonna give us the tools to serve them. That's why I, that's why I don't see this being complicated. Honestly, because I don't feel like I have to be so smart to be able to solve the problems of people. What I need to do is have the emotional state and disposition to operationalize the things for people that they don't have the capacity to operationalize for themselves yet. And often at times that just comes from me actually listening because there's considerable value add in it and not showing how smart I am. I know I'm smart. I don't have to. And I don't think that there's anything prideful or boastful about saying that. I am smart. I am intelligent. But my smarts and my intelligence is to use, be used as a service tool, not as a reaffirming tool for what I already know to be true about me. And my clients know that to be true about me. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here working with me. So that's not the case. The case is how do I use my tool set to hear the clients so that I can better serve them in ways that they can't serve themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love that, that, that way of thinking in the way that we provide value to our clients and generally how we serve in our profession. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I think that's going to be that's helpful great. for people to hear. Definitely. I also wanted to, uh, you know, before we go, I wanted to bring yeah. up that uh, you published a book this year. Congratulations. I did. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Thank that's you. awesome. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> is it is it is this your first uh your first published work or you yeah know? so this is yeah so this is my first um independently published work that I've done. Uh I've written chapters and things of that nature for other books and have um assisted and have written research. Uh but this uh the Black Financial Culture Building Wealth from the Inside Out book that I published was a was a passion project of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, simply because I know that, or have known for a very long time, that there are very difficult conversations that I can't have with family directly. 
um, because of power dynamics or perceptions of I'm mom, I'm dad, this or that or the other, I'm uncle or I'm grandma. (laughs) And I was like, well, if I'm having that issue, I know that other people are having that issue as well. Um, So how can I write something that is vulnerable, that's raw, that's authentic, that speaks to the heart of truth in a way that anybody can embrace it and see themselves in the work, but in a non-threatening way, where my hope is that it promotes family conversations around money. That starts inwardly, that then ultimately manifests itself outwardly. So I didn't focus a whole lot in this book on like, this is how you budget. This there's We have tons of resources around that. Deciding this, we have tons of, I don't talk about credit in this book or none of that stuff. Uh, what I'm talking about is our emotional disposition internally, internal factors, external factors, our lived experiences that's rooted in my lived experiences and how that's affected, affected my relationship with money, where I've struggled, where I've won, what I struggle with. Um, and I just wanted people to read something that felt real. Not as, oh, I didn't even put PhD, AFC, any designations that I have here, um, because I wanted the book to speak for itself and for you to read it and to be able to say, oh, this is, I see myself in this, right? So Black financial culture, the general theme of that is how I experience Black financial culture right now. I don't define what that is. I don't tell people that this is black financial culture and this is what it means to be moving forward because I believe in agency and the greatest form of freedom is agency for you to choose. What I do in this book is I say, hey, but are you actually choosing, right? Are you existing and responding based on what you've always known, right? Or are you actually choosing your direction? And there's no way that you can read this book And it not calls for you to have internal conversations about, well, am I actually making this choice? Am I actually doing this? Am I, have I been nudged in other ways as we think about Richard Thaler's book on nudge and systems theory and things of that nature? Um, How am I being influenced and where is that coming from? And how can I express my own agency? So that's that element of it. It's Black financial culture as in in the Black, meaning being in the positive, Black Friday, so on and so forth. And it's Black financial culture in terms of Black being a color that absorbs all the light and it creates warmth. So my hope is that in this book that you're going to see that I'm talking about systems theory. I'm talking about uh, the trans-theoretical model of change. I'm talking about bounded rationality. I'm incorporating literally the best of everything that I know I've seen, I've read, I've written about in this space to date, goal attainment. But I don't say, oh, this is this theory and these are the constructs of the theory. I've written this in a way that my mom could read it and she get information from it without feeling like it's an academic read. So the idea is how do I take what's academic and make it accessible to individuals in my family that would never go and read a journal article that I've written, that would never buy a $500 book that I've written a chapter or two in. You, you know where I'm going here. Yep. That would never that would never pay the $30 for the paywall just to get to the article to begin with, to begin to read something that they can't even understand as they get through half of it 
or even the first section of it, right? So I was like, how do, the reason why I'm here, the reason why I'm in this space is to encourage people to take ownership for, for, for their financial journey and not create barriers that I can control over language, over jargon, over all the scientific stuff that we do and statistics and all that jazz. But how do I make it palatable so someone can say, oh, that's it? Yeah, I'll do that. I just get it done. I did not intend for this book to be a book where people would go get estate planning done. I've literally had 15 people today tell me that we've gone and got our estate planning done. <laughs> that was that was not the purpose of this book. Yeah. But there's an element in there. But people actually went and got their estate planning done because of this book. I'm like, that was not the highlight necessarily for me. But I'm glad that you got that. <laughs> right? It's 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 random. I, I scared somebody. Hopefully. Uh, no, it, it wasn't rooted in, in a fear tactic. So those are the three elements of black. And then there's a heart shape on the book, which has gold on it. And that comes from the Japanese art form of Kintsugi, which is golden repair. And it's the whole idea that a vase that was broken, when you repair it, we're not going to conceal the cracks. We're actually going to highlight the cracks utilizing a gold lacquered to show more of its character. And in Japanese culture, that new form of the vase with the highlighting of its cracks with golden or silver accents um, is perceived to be more refined and more beautiful than it was in its previous state. So that was kind of like the, the underlying basis for the entire book is that brokenness Addressing brokenness takes very different tools than addressing being broke. And so in this particular book, what I'm doing is that I'm speaking to my own brokenness uh, that I've experienced, that I've had to grow from uh, in a way that people can externalize my experience and then engage in a safe space with experiencing their own and then beginning the process of healness and wholeness so that as they do begin to build their wealth journeys, that they'd be able to do so sustainably. And that's always my biggest fear for people who are struggling with brokenness, um, is that money becomes the thing that we use to self-soothe. So no matter how much we have, if I'm trying to fill my void with money, I'm not gonna be able to grow it. I'm not gonna be able to sustain it. And I'm using a tool that doesn't have the capacity to heal me if I'm using it in an appropriate way. Uh, so. That's the context of, of the book. Uh, it's less than 100 pages. I did that intentionally because, again, my mom had to read this book and, <laughs> and she does not like to read. And uh, so anybody who's who's read it to this point, even I had a good buddy of mine. He's a, he's a white gentleman. So I'm like, I read the book. And, uh, and then she was like, initially, I, he was like, initially, I didn't think it would be for me. But he was like, after I read it, though, he was like, I got so much out of this book. Thank you. And, and that was, for me, the reason why I didn't shy away from the Black financial culture language. Uh, because I think that regardless of cultural norms and dynamics, we're all a fabric of American society. And how could you not be intrigued as an individual to say that, you know what, let me learn more about this part of our fabric, <laughs> right? In a way to where we realize at the end of the day that, you know what, we're a lot more connected we have a lot of shared experiences. I've seen this in my family, right? I've had 
so many of my peers say like, man, that happened in my family, mm-hmm. this is that the other. Uh, and then I have black peers who don't think that any of these things happen in white families, which is always a very interesting dynamic to me, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've had black friends who said, well, maybe you didn't go too far. You didn't go far enough in this book, right? Like you didn't really speak to the overall black experience. Like you can't please anybody, but I'm not going <laughs> to shy away from it right. and speak authentically to my perceptions my actual work and reality in this space and serving a lot of different people and actually using this as this notion of blackness to create this sense of warmth that connects us as opposed to divide us. Uh, so that's the beauty of the book. And the other thing that I'll add is that just uh, on Tuesday of this week, I actually published a book using blockchain technology. And uh, yes, so there's a there's a company called book.io where when you publish on the the blockchain, literally, that iteration of the book is immutable. You know, like you can't take it off the chain once it's there. (laughs) Uh, But for individuals who buy it, they actually own their digital copy of the book. So you're not leasing it. Uh, so you can loan it out to people if you want to loan it out. You can sell it if you want to sell it. You can do whatever you want with the book. It's your book. And I love that that aspect of ownership and agency. Uh, so I started working with them in November of last year. And uh, so we actually reduced, we released 500 copies uh, with different cover designs and art that are really, really cool. Um, and uh, all 500 books minted and sold within three minutes. Uh, So that was really, really exciting. And I've been having a lot of conversations with people who've purchased the book through book.io and their platform, uh, where we've just been having ongoing conversations about the book chapter at a time, literally on their Discord channel. Like, like Dr. Thomas, you said this, you got to tell me more. So that's been really, really cool to have that type of engagement with people who've read the book and uh, utilizing blockchain, blockchain technology in a very practical use case. Uh, that's very low risk for individuals um, just to understand what this is and what it means. And literally, what does Web3 mean? It's literally owning your digital identity and digital content. Uh, so people get to do that with the book. And uh, so really excited about that. And yeah, it's just a lot of really, really cool things are like in the works. And um, it's 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 a fun time. And I'm incredibly proud to be among the likes of you all uh, as it relates to navigating this space and, and serving in this industry. And being in a space where we're actually having these conversations and seeing the value in these conversations, um, because as a profession, at the end of the day, uh, I just want to get to a place to where people don't even question the merits of an advisor. Like trust is inherent. It's I don't have to say I don't have to name my company Trusted Finance, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like trust. Like if you, if you have to if you have to label yourself trust, right? Then there's probably an issue to begin with here. Right. Where like when people just approach this space and they see it as trust is commonplace. Right. Anything beyond that is the exception. And from there on, it's just about who you feel is the right fit and can provide the best value based on our expertise and your needs at that time. And I just want to contribute to that narrative. And um, I just enjoy living and existing here. And so thank you all for the work that you all are doing. And, and thank you for allowing me to have this space to to talk to your audience. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. We really learned a lot. Uh, definitely some great insights. Uh, you uh, you definitely know your stuff and, you know, really give, gave our listeners some great tips on 
how to build that empathy connection with their clients. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Michael. There's, there's going to be a lot here that I think our listeners can come back to and uh, continue to get value from. And we just so appreciate your time and insights. Thank you. Excellent. Well, that does it for this week of the Biff Bites podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, what are you guys doing? Hit that subscribe button and we will see you all next week with another awesome episode of the Biff Bites. Thank you.